Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 18, 2014, and finally after about three weeks, it's Friday, Friday, Friday. I wish I felt as good as that probably sounds. I'm, I'm still in recovery, but I do feel a lot better thanks to all the well wishes that have come out. Uh, with my recent bout with some kind of terrible illness. And I do say terrible because it's uh, one of the more debilitating things that I've uh, come up with. I've had a couple email me and say, uh, why don't you do an episode on how you deal with all of the things on a homestead when somebody's in that shape? And the answer is it's difficult. And you, you do what needs to be done and only what absolutely needs to be done. You go into a holding pattern. And, you know, other members of the family step up and pull weight. But when it's a small family and you've been doing a large portion, there's only so much they can step up and pull. If they hurt themselves trying to do too much, then you're in worse shape. So you you go into a position where everybody does what's necessary and what they're capable of just to keep things in status quo. And it does make you evaluate the energy systems uh, and do a little bit more energy audit Uh, on your property, not so much so you can save polar bears, but so that you can save work. Anyway, uh, maybe one day I'll do that. I don't know. Right now, I don't want to really go deeper into the fact that I feel like crap. I want to try to focus on all this other stuff that's going on out there. So today we have your calls. Those calls come into our Think line. That number is 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. The number for those of you without letters on your pad for whatever reason, 866-658-4465, 866-658-4465, toll-free call in the United States, and I believe it's toll-free for you guys in Canada too, but I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, you make a phone call, you leave me your call, you give me your question or your point in the first 30 seconds, if you don't, and I had one today, don't know what you were talking about, but 30 seconds in, I still didn't know what you were talking about, delete. I'm just trying to be clear, man. Make your point or get to your point quickly. Don't use names of people that you assume that I know when I don't know them either. That was another problem. This guy's name came up like four times in 30 seconds. I have no idea who he is or what the hell he was talking about. Um, anyway, you do that. You call from a quiet location. Make sure there's some bars on your phone if you're calling from a cell phone. And odds are you may hear yourself on the air uh, within a week or two. Right now I have a huge backlog of calls. I'm never going to end up digging all the way back into them. If you've called in the last couple weeks and don't hear yourself today, you probably want to redo your call. Uh, I'm just behind now from uh, missing shows, and I probably will never get to those calls. I'm sorry. It's a physical limitation. Anyway, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is ReadyMadeResources.com. That's the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need for your pet wrapping, ready-made, ready-to-go, point, click, and buy on their website. Sent to you with great pricing, great customer service, and lightning-fast shipping. Check them out today, ReadyMadeResources.com, the company that does what it says, says what it does. Next up today, Backyard Food Production. It's another company that uh, says what it provides. Backyard Food Production. How'd you like to turn your backyard into a food production machine? Marjorie Wildcraft has an amazing DVD series at BackyardFoodProduction.com called Growing Your Groceries. You'll see how she produces an awful lot of her family's uh, food on their farm just south of Austin. And it's a pretty harsh environment. If she can do it there, you can probably do it anywhere. 
while they have quite a bit of land, they actually have a fairly small area that they do the majority of their food production on, which means you can adapt our systems from large-scale farming to small backyards and everything in between. Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Members Support Brigade is where you become a member of the Survival Podcast community to help support the work that we do as part of a brigade. That's why it's called the Member Support Brigade. Isn't that cool? It's about 50 bucks a year, or uh, it's less if you're military law enforcement or Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, or firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a discount. Email me with service discount in the subject line. You send that email to jack at survivalpodcast.com. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences only is all I need, and I will get back to you with a discount code. If you do that before, not after you join, everybody else, you pay full price, but I think it's more than worth it. You'll get discounts on a lot of the things that you're probably buying anyway. Most members tell me if they use the discounts, the membership more than pays for itself, and you help support the work we're doing at the same time. With that, let's get into the year that was the episode 1389. I got two for you. Great schism, a chance for unity denied about the, the rift in the Catholic Church and two popes, count them, yes, one, two popes, and Ottoman Turks, the Battle of Kosovo. I'm going to read Ottoman Turks, the Battle of Kosovo. If you'd like to read more about this year in history, go to tspwiki.com and look up the history segment for the year 1389. Um, here's what Alex Shrugged from TSP Wiki has for us today. While the Europeans have been fighting amongst themselves, the Ottoman Turks have been chewing their way through Bulgaria. Sofia has already fallen, and the terrain makes the Ottomans turn toward Morvarian Serbia obvious. The key reason here is Kosovo. So Prince Lazar leads a blocking force to meet the Turks. All the chips are on the table as the Battle of Kosovo turns into a death match. Prince Lazar breaks through the line and kills Sultan Murad I. The Sultan's son rallies, kills the prince in turn. When the smoke clears, almost everyone is dead on both sides. But the Ottoman reserves will be brought forward from the east and blow through what is left of Kosovo, threatening Hungary. Uh, my take by Alex Shrug, the accounts of the Battle of Kosovo are ep epic, almost mythical. Songs were composed of the battle, so it is difficult to know what is true, except almost everyone died on both sides, and the leaders of both sides were killed. Later accounts have Milos Obek as the assassin of the Sultan, but whoever did the deed, he didn't live through it. Even though the forces fought to a draw, nothing was left in the Serbian forces, which left the region wide open for invasion. Prince Lazar will be sainted, and this epic battle will be remembered in the modern day, especially at the beginning of World War I and the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Which, of course, my take now, plunged the entire world into one of the stupidest wars of all time. World War I was one of the stupidest things humanity ever did to itself. And, and the loss of life to both soldier and civilian in World War I was horrific. And it was the worst thing that had ever happened to humanity and the stupidest war that ever happened to humanity all the way up until World War II, which was caused by World War I. Adolf Hitler is not the cause of World War II. Adolf Hitler was a symptom of what was done to this region and has been done all the way back to here in the 1300s. The, the truth is... The powers that be throughout the world have used this area of the world from, from Kosovo and the Balkans all the way down through the Middle East as just a place to do whatever the hell they want for so long now that the people there all hate each other. And we've incited that violence. The first modern, the first modern holy war of Islam, do you know where it came from? We caused it in World War I. 
We caused it. Yes. We've heard about this thing and, uh, you know, really? There's this thing called a what? A jihad? How's that work? They all rise up and kill infidels? Are our enemies in this infidels? Ah, get them to rise up and kill those infidels. Uh, but we're infidels too. Ah, that doesn't matter. They're not strong enough to fight us, but we need them to take care of these other people while this shit's going on. Yeah. Yeah. The modern Balkan Wars, right back to this time and before. And I'll tell you what, it's right down to what's going on in Israel right now. It's right down to what's going on in Israel right now. You got people on both sides of that war right now bombing the shit out of civilians. And if you think that's okay on either side, you have a very sick problem in your head, folks. I keep seeing these things. Stand with Israel. If any other country were bombing apartment buildings, would we stand with them? I'm not saying Israel's not in a tough spot right now. And I'm not saying it hasn't been done to them too. I'm not saying that either side is right. And usually in wars, neither side is right. The propaganda machine is to convince the majority of people that one side is right. And that's the side that usually ends up winning the war. I'm not telling you how to think or how to act in your politics here, folks, right now. But I'm going to tell you right now, when you see some internet meme around that goes, stand with Israel, but you don't know what the hell's going on, just blindly following, that's plain stupid. It really is. And doing it because your pastor said so, because the Bible says so, that's even dumber. I don't care what your faith is, you're still called upon in any faith or in any just plain logic as a human being to evaluate the individual situation and freaking understand it before you blindly follow either side of anything. And there's way too much blind following going on right now in both Israel and the Gaza Strip and in the Ukraine. And blind following in war and mixing religion in it usually leads to lots of wailing, screaming, gnashing of teeth, and death. And in a day and age where we can irradiate people from halfway around the world and wipe out a city with one button, maybe we need to think a little bit more than we have in the past. I didn't know I was going to say this today, but this is your freaking wake-up call world. Blowing the shit out of people doesn't make you a hero. Blowing the shit out of people and winning in a war doesn't mean you're right. We've been studying wars now for about 200 years of history in these history segments. And I have yet to see a war go down in history where I could say it's clear that this side was right and this side was wrong. If there was a war, if there was a war in modern times where there was a clear right and wrong, it was World War II. But the great evil that rose up in World War II was caused by multiple previous wars, including all the way back and until this time. Don't blindly follow anybody when it comes to warfare. Don't blindly support anybody when it comes to warfare. I'm, I'm saying, ask the questions. Who's doing what to whom right now? And would it be acceptable if anybody else did that? And if that offends you, that means you're not using your freaking brain. I didn't tell you what to think or what conclusion to draw. I said to not draw a blind, stupid, ignorant, moronic conclusion because the TV told you something or the guy that knows a little bit more about the Bible told you something. Use your own damn brain and make your own damn decision. And if that talk offends you, um, really being told to think for yourself is offensive? Well, let's get on to better things and take your first call of the day. 
Hi, Jack. This is Aaron from Michigan, also known as Barn Geek on the blog. I uh, just wanted to ask uh, uh, how you identified the different types of comfrey. I bought some comfrey at a at a sh- at a swap meet, and uh, the lady didn't know what kind it was. So I'd like to figure out what that is. And also, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about personal liberty. I've got some friends that are stuck in the rat race and and don't see a way out. So I was wondering if you could talk on that. I appreciate all you do, Jack. Have a great day. Bye. All right, this is one of those things where you say something and people are like, dang it. Um, the reality is, on some level, you just know the difference between 4 and 14. You, you, when, you, when, you get, when you actually see both of them and you know what both of them are, you know the difference. And you'll look at a plant and go, okay, that's 14 and that's 4. This is, the, this is very hard to do. Um, and I do need to, as I get better here, and I'm do, I was doing this whole series on comfrey, I'm going to actually take the camera and show you comfrey plants that are 4 and comfrey plants that are 14 so you can look at them. The thing is, the geese have eaten most of my comfrey, and a lot of the spots where I have comfrey growing, it's in really bad shape right now from the drought, even though it just poured rain yesterday. Um, so I don't have a r- really big, healthy plants of both varieties to show you right now. And, and no, I'm not worried that that happened because it's going to grow right back. But four has a very long, elongated, large, huge, pointed leaf as it matures. Four, uh, that's four, I'm sorry. 14 does pretty much the same thing, but the leaf is more rounded. And, and it's, it's hard to look at one versus the other and know which one you got without the two of them side by side, at least until you get to know what to look for. Here's the good news. It doesn't freaking matter. 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 Four is considered to be a little bit better of a forage crop. And 14 is considered to be a little bit better for making fertilizers. It's bullshit. It's just people that like get asked the same question and sooner or later they got to come up with some. Four does seem to be with some livestock a little bit more palatable. You know, um, 14 seems to have a few more animals that'll turn their nose up at it or what have you. But some animals maybe just don't like comfrey. You know, maybe I don't know if there are any real heavy trials have been done to determine the difference. It works the same. It does the same. Both are sterile hybrids. Comfrey aficionado, right? Real comfrey, true comfrey that'll reproduce from seed has much smaller leaves. It's more weed looking. I mean, you'll, you'll, you look at it, you know, it doesn't have these big giant leaves, these more smaller leaves. And that'll reproduce from seed. And it works just as good on everything else too. In fact, it's probably better for medicinal use because it has smaller numbers of the alkaloids in it. So don't sweat it, but it's going to be very difficult for you to know the difference until you look at something else and see it side by side. And when you see the two side by side, you'll definitely notice that one is more pointed and one is more rounded. The more pointed is 4, the more rounded 14. And 14 gets a little bit smaller stalks. Again, in the real world, it doesn't matter. It's comfrey. It's Russian hybrid comfrey. Personal liberty. I'll tell you what. The number one thing you can do for personal liberty is what I just said in my rant. Think for your damn self. Don't tacitly endorse when you see a picture that says, click here to like if you think Obama should do this, or click here if you think the Republicans are doing that, or click this and click that and click this. Stop clicking shit, okay? Stop clicking like the shit when you don't even know what it is. You want personal liberty, stop being a little bird in a nest 
that every time someone shows up and it looks like it's the mama bird you like versus the mama bird your nestling likes, open your mouth and go, oh, please puke down my freaking throat and tell me what I'm supposed to believe. Ask your own damn questions and get your own damn answers. Don't believe anybody about anything if it doesn't pass the sniff test for you personally. There is nothing you can do for personal liberty beyond that. Or, or bigger than that, I should say. There's plenty you can do beyond that. But that's a step one. You cannot have personal liberty in your life if you let somebody else tell you what to think. Even me. I'll tell you what I think. And I'll tell you if you think this, you're a moron. That doesn't mean I'm right. But if you're going to tell me I'm wrong, or you're going to decide for yourself, well, Jack's wrong on this one, I disagree with him, know why the hell you believe what you believe. Most people in America today do not know why the hell they believe what they believe. They, they hate Obama, so the Republican guy must be good. And even if he sucks, he doesn't suck as bad as Obama. He might suck worse. He might suck worse. Do you know what you're getting, America? Do you know what you're getting in 2016? You're getting a strong man for president. Oh, yeah. You are. You're going to beg for it. You're going to get a guy that's going to step on more throats than Obama and Bush combined. You're going to get a guy that's going to be seen as tough, hard, willing to do the things that others will not. A true dictator. A true presidential dictator. And he's not going to come amongst this, oh God, look at this guy. No, no, no. He's going to be cheered. One side will bring him. I don't know which one, but one side will. It'll probably be a Republican. One side will bring them, and there'll be a contrast in a general election. You'll be able to see a strongman, and whoever strongman is is going to win. The American people have been set up to scream for a strongman by a weak puppet. Obama's a puppet. All the shit this guy gets blamed for. This guy has got the hand in a special interest so far up his ass, when they wiggle her fingers, it tickles the inside of his head. This guy's incompetent. He doesn't know what the hell he was doing. He wasn't ready to be president. Even in the screwed up, two mafia family system that we have, he is not competent to be our president. And everybody knows this. Even the people that support him, they know he's not competent. And you got all these people that supported this ass clown and voted for him twice now, coming up with these stern messages to Obama. Mr. President, we supported you because he doesn't give a shit. He got your vote, dummy. He doesn't care anymore. He's done. This guy's already figuring out his next book deal after he leaves. This guy already has somebody working on his speaking schedule where he's going to make millions and millions of freaking dollars running around flapping his gums about bullshit he doesn't even understand. And that was all set up, and it was all designed. That's why the Republicans ran complete idiots that could have never won the office against them. John McCain? Really? I mean, that guy was retreaded out so many times. There couldn't have been a guy less electable than that moron. And then Mitt Romney? Are you kidding me? That guy was never going to be president. He's never going to be president. It's never going to happen. And you, so you, you put up these, 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 empty suits to run against this other empty suit and you put incompetence in and you let the people behind the scenes control everything and you let the guy look like he's spinning out of control and completely incompetent because he is and you don't worry about the world blowing up because whenever he gets too close to the red button you send handlers in to control him and straighten his shit out because he knows he, he knows he's incompetent too And the American people, by, by 2016, the American people are going to be going, will somebody please get control of this shit? And someone's going to step up, and they're going to be a tough, hard-nosed son of a bitch. 
a guy that could have never got elected president because the American people would have never trusted somebody like this. And they'll cheer when he's elected. And you better work on personal liberty because you ain't changing that. You want to work on personal liberty? Stop paying attention to bullshit. Quit. Quit participating in the nonsense. Quit choosing a side when both sides are killing people. You don't, if the two people are murdering people in opposition to each other, you don't pick a side. You stay the hell out of it. If the Corleones and the Sancias are bumping each other off, you don't pick a side. But that's what we've been trained to do in America. We have no ability to think for ourselves. Personal liberty's bullshit without personal independent thought and decision making. There's no personal liberty until you think for yourself. None. I can give, I can remove every law that affects you and you will be still in tyranny if you cannot think for yourself. Because I can control you without laws. 99% of the shit that Americans do that makes them miserable, they do by their own choosing. 99% of that which makes Americans enslaved, they choose for themselves willingly. And they'll try to kill you if you take it away from them. And then they turn around and say, I want more liberty. No, you don't. No, you don't. If you're not thinking for yourself... If you don't occasionally think the other guy's right, then you're a drone, a pre-programmed drone, and drones don't have liberty. I don't know what to tell your friends other than to pull their head out of their fourth point of contact, and they can look that up if they don't know what that means, and think for themselves. Stop getting your news from anybody and start asking questions and seeking answers. Until you do that, you have shit. Anyway, next question. Uh, hi, Jack. This is Dave in Colorado. I had a quick question about making biltong out of store-bought meat. Uh, I've never heard you mention that before, and I just, in general, kind of consider store-bought anything to be poisonous or filthy in some way or another. So just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Is it safe? Is it worth trying? Uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Thanks a lot. I've definitely made biltong out of store-bought meat, and I'll do it again. Um, in fact, my video that shows me making biltong on the Internet actually is made from store-bought meat. And I have to actually say, like, as much as I'm opposed to genetic modified foods, as much as I'm opposed to all the toxins that are in, food, in our food system, if your attitude is everything in the stores is poison, then everybody would already be dead. I mean, there is a certain value to our food system. We can't just discredit the entire thing and say there's no value to our food system. And probably the least toxic of the things that we can eat out of the mainstream food system are, are meats. And I'll tell you why. Even with beef and even with CAFOs, most cattle spend the majority of their life actually on grass. They're only corn-finished. Now, I, I don't think this is a good practice, especially the way both from a sanitation, from a, 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 a toxicology, and from a humanity right standpoint that this is done. I mean, if you want to see a miserable creature, look at a cow uh, a, a week before it graduates at a CAFO. It, it, it's, it, it's disgusting that humanity has gotten to a level where we think this is an acceptable way to treat any living creature. 
It, it really is. But in the end, it's still a grass-fed, corn-finished cow, which means the the things that are done to that animal from a health standpoint because of the corn ingestion are only part of that finishing process. And that's where they fatten the animal up and all. I think we could corn-finish some beef. I think there is a certain quality to corn-finished beef that tastes good. If it didn't, they wouldn't do it. You could say whatever you want about big food, okay? But if, if, if taking a cow and shoving it full of corn didn't enhance the resale value of the meat, they would just leave the cow on grass because grass is cheap compared to corn. So there is a certain taste for this marbled flesh. And the truth is you can finish a cow on grass and you can make it just as fatty as anything that ever ate corn. You can't do it as young. That's why they do it, right? And, and it's money that motivates the most horrific treatment of living creatures from human or otherwise, not malice. Money causes malice far more than malice is, is, is the generator of money. And what I mean by that is very few people are actually malicious for maliciousness sake. They do it for gain. And the closer they are to a psychopath, the more malice they will exhibit for personal gain. And when they cross over to psychopath, that is the point where they will, they will do malice for malice sake because it, 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 they, it, they enjoy it. Fortunately, the true complete psychopath is a very small number of society. Most are borderline psychopathic that do what they do for personal gain. So don't look at the food system as being 100% evil. Look at being the manifestation of many evils due to greed, because that's what it is. And understand that as bad as it is, it does do some things for society. If you pulled the plug on it tomorrow morning, it would be gone. So beef is actually handled pretty well, especially if it's not ground beef, full-cut beef. Um, I have no problem taking a good, clean cut of beef and making biltong out of it. I would not make it out of ground beef. I just would not. The other thing is a piece, a solid piece of meat, and this is why you can eat a rare steak, if it's, as long as it's handled properly, the meat that's inside of it doesn't have any contaminants. It's the meat that's on the outside you have to worry about. This is why you can cook a rare steak. And this is why, you know, if the meat is, is handled completely properly, you can make steak tartare and things like that, and people don't die. Boy, any piece of meat, though, that comes in contact with the internal organs, especially like the intestines or anything, if anything's ruptured, that's where you get into problems. That's where a lot of this ground beef is these remnants of the carcass. And that's where we get a lot of toxins there. So I have no problem using store-bought beef to make biltong. I always try to choose my food this way, though. I would first prefer local. If I cannot get local, I'd like... Some form of all natural. It may be organic. There's certain industries, though, where you're actually better off without organic. Maybe because the producer doesn't give a shit about organic. Like grass-fed beef. Right? If it's grass-fed beef, you're, 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 you're halfway home. So I prefer local. Then I go to a natural alternative. Then if that's not available, I go whatever organic alternative is available. And if that's not available, then I go to a, a mainstream product. And try to buy the cleanest, best looking, and learn to look at meat, learn to read meat, learn to understand meat, learn to know what you're dealing with. Because you look at some meat and you go, that's not good meat. 
Just like the comfrey. You know when you know. And you look at other meat and you go, that's good meat. You can tell. Healthy meat. Human beings, we have an eye for this. I've never worked with anybody with butchering and gutting an animal. Where if you, when you extract the organs, if there's an animal that's got a problem, a disease, you always check things like, like the kidneys and the liver. And if the animal, if like it's an animal, I go, I don't think this animal should be eaten. A person that's never seen it before looks at it and goes, yeah, I see what you mean. And when you show them a healthy liver, they know what it is. They, oh, that does look healthy. They don't even know what that means, but they know it. We have an eye for this. So looking at your meat is a big part of it. But, I mean, you can use whatever you want as long as it's a red meat. No pork, no chicken in Biltong. I wouldn't use rabbit or squirrel or anything. Like This is a red meat thing. Lean cuts. Anyway, if you want to learn more on making Biltong, I'll put a link to uh, the videos where I make Biltong in today's show notes. Hey, Jack. This is Matthew from Tucson, the warrior hunter on the forums. My question is about how and when to prune a tree. Um, details are I have a peach tree that gave me quite a few peaches last year, and they were wonderful. This year, I hardly got any. Um, they still tasted good, but just not the production that I had last year. I did not prune the tree last year. Um, I wasn't really sure how and got busy, so I just let it grow. This year, I've got a lot of new growth on it, and a month or two ago, you said something about an improperly pruned tree would actually um, inhibit growth because not enough sunlight can get through, and basically, it's kind of getting smothered. You also, several months ago, mentioned a video uh, that was excellent in pruning and how to prune. I have not been able to find that video. Can't remember the guy's name. Wondered if you could share that, possibly post a link up to it. Also, um, with when to prune it, given some information you've shared in the past recent weeks, it sounds like it would be best to prune it right before the tree goes dormant. Uh, so if that's the case, if you could confirm that, that'd be great. And I hope that I can hear this call and uh, get some more peaches next year. Thanks. Love what you do. Okay, well, the, um, the, the person you're thinking of, is, the company is called Dave Wilson Nursery, and the individual's name is Dave Wilson. I have a link in the show notes to a resources page for community and home gardeners, and uh, there's a whole series of videos there that you can look at to learn more. And with peaches in particular, I'd say get look at as many videos as you can of different people pruning peach trees. Peach trees are actually a little more complicated in some ways to prune than many other trees because of certain ways that they behave. Um, first thing you need to know about peach trees, they fruit on second year wood. So, you know, when, when you're looking at that, um, you're looking at new growth. And that means the wood that produced peaches last year is not ever going to produce peaches again. Got it? The wood that you got a peach, the, the, the branch that you pulled a peach off last year is never, ever, ever, ever going to make another peach for you. It'll be a new growth from the year before that grew while well, that branch fruited and another growth came in and that branch is going to fruit. Now, a lot of trees have propensities, and some trees follow similar rules, but like this hard, I mean, this is like, it's like raspberry canes. The cane comes up one year, it fruits the second year, you get it out the third year. With raspberries, they have the decency to just die for you. With peaches, they'll keep growing. So it's that older wood that has to remove. So, and, and no, fall is probably not the best time to, to prune, and it's certainly not the best time to prune 
um, uh, a peach. Uh, late spring probably is. So let me kind of give you the way that you you you, you want to do this. Um, you want to prune either uh, when that tree is just getting ready to bud out, or the tree you're just starting to see the buds. And you can usually with peaches, the blossoms will actually show before the leaf buds. And you can see where the blossoms are. And where blossoms are, you know that's new wood that's going to fruit this year. So what you want to do first is you want to remove all the hanger shoots, rootstock suckers, water spouts, and the lower three feet of the tree. So anything three feet or down coming up out of the ground or from the trunk of the tree, cut it off. Get rid of it. This lets your airflow come in. Step two, all shoots above seven feet high. Anything up above seven feet high. This is for pruning kind of an orchard-sized tree here. Um, except for 18 to 24 inches of fruiting shoots. So that new growth that's out there, you, you want to leave that. Everything else or beyond that 18 to 24 fruiting shoot, take it off. And make sure you're cutting at like 45 to 50 degree angles. That way you end up with, uh, you, you don't want to have the branch sticking out sideways and have a straight 90. And you don't want it standing up with a straight 90. Because water can collect there and cause diseases and damages to the tree. Then anything that's growing internally, any, any shoots that are growing into the tree, cut those out. And then remove all your old gray wood uh, in the three to four, three to seven foot fruit production zone. So about three foot to eight foot, anywhere you got this old gray wood that doesn't have any new growth off of it, get it out of there. Cut it out, and that'll probably be most of what you need. Um, there's different theories with trees. Some people say don't prune trees at all. Let them do what they do in nature. And I think in some instances. That works. If the tree has natural form and is grown from seed to natural form, a lot of times that works. A lot of times with grafted trees and all, it just doesn't work. And most of the fruit trees we plant today, let's be honest, are going to be grafted trees. And they're going to come having been pruned and they already have a form and the form's probably not quite right. And what happens with peach trees, if you don't prune them, When you do get a good year, and I'll talk about the year cycles with peach trees in a second, you get so much growth on unpruned sections, the tree will self-prune because the weight of the fruit, as it ripens, will get so heavy, the branches will break off the tree. Especially if you're close to ripe, you're close to ripe, almost there, almost ready to be ripe, and then you get a big rainstorm, and the tree goes, <laughs> just sucks that water up, oh yeah, late summer rainstorm, man, I'm going to take this up, and it goes, I got all these peaches that need moisture, here you go dudes, here's your water. And that piece gets heavy, and there's 15 of them on one branch. It's crack. That limb breaks right off. Okay, now, on your experience, is not even really that big of a concern, though. This is how peach trees are. Bumper crop, shitty crop, okay crop, bumper crop. Shitty crop, okay crop, bumper crop. Shitty crop, okay crop, bunker crop. That's how peaches are. They just are. They're a three-year cycle. Your best production will always be in the third year of the cycle. And it will always drop off abysmally in the, in the next cycle. And it will come back up to a reasonable cycle. And you can do things with pruning to improve this. But if you want good peaches every year, it's good, best to have a lot of peach trees. 
And hopefully you'll end up with some in staggered cycles. Because it's not like every tree has this same pattern. It's not like, well, 2014 is going to be a crappy year for all peaches. Some trees it's going to be a good year for, and some trees not so much. But if all your trees are the same age, planted at the same time, of the same variety, you're probably going to end up in a pretty tight cycling. So diversity in where you plant your trees, the ages of your trees, when you plant your trees, all these things will spread your peach happy harvests out over greater periods of time. Uh, but yeah, check out Dave Wilson Nursery. I didn't know that he had a really good one on peach trees, but I bet if you dig in all his videos, he's got to have one. I have to say about Dave Wilson Nursery, I don't think there's another producer of trees out there today that's providing more resources to its customer base. And its customer base is made up of nurseries, commercial producers, and backyard gardeners. And, and, and Dave, this guy is putting out solid information for everybody. So I think he's an incredible resource. I haven't even dug halfway through the resources the guy has available. And he's putting out some really cool varieties of multigraphs and other things too. The, 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 the harvest charts are hugely beneficial. I, I just think that of all the people in this business right now, uh, just one of the outstanding suppliers. And, it, it, you know, it really gives me a lot of uh, pleasure that I'm able to buy Dave's products through Bob Wilson in Lindale, Texas, um, that he is doing a good job of establishing a network of dealers instead of just dealing direct so that he can put his product into local markets. So if you want Dave Wilson's stuff, And, you know, you're like, well, I'm not from California, and I'm not going all the way out there to buy from Dave. I think he'd prefer that you, he, you buy from one of his uh, reselling nurseries anyway. And if you check around, you'll probably find somebody in your area is reselling Dave's product. Amazing, amazing resource. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Paul in Ohio. I just heard a poll results that uh, 6% of Americans have a favorable view of Congress. And 74, I think, percent of Americans have a favorable view of the military. So I was just wondering what you thought about if we could be ripe in a couple years of a, of a military takeover or a military coup. Um, just something I thought of when I heard those poll results. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Boy, questions and thoughts that come in themes don't seem to come in themes, but this is right back to personal liberty and thinking for your damn self, isn't it? Okay, uh, first of all, caller, I'm not picking on you, but when you hear a friggin' number like 6% approval of Congress, you already know that the source is bullshit. Because the average sheeple, uh, you know, there's people that, that, that answer that question differently. Um, probably the most accurate tracker of congressional approval rates would be the Pew, uh, Pew, uh, Pew Research Center. And as of uh, February, anyway, it's 23%. It's bounced around in the 20s. Um, that's the latest date I can see from them. But when I researched that number, um, you know, it's now down into 12% at Real Clear Politics. And that's a number I trust as well. But 6%, you've got a source that's clearly angled the data. right? Probably Fox News, for all I know. But they've clearly angled the data to to come up with a certain level or you've you've pulled libertarians you know you've pulled a libertarian think tank or something like that. so the next number was like 76% approve of our military and i can find that bouncing around depending on whoever is being pulled uh from in the 60s to the 80 percentile 
Um, and I actually find that that number has also declined uh, over time. But there, there's no doubt there's a schism there, right? There is a big gap between the military approval rate and the congressional approval rate. But why then is the first thing that I'm going to do is to check those numbers. Because if I'm going to draw a conclusion based on information, then I should evaluate the sources whether or not it's valid or not. And just because that sounds right, well, most people hate Congress. Well, really? Then why are they still there? And does that number mean anything? What is the average re-election rate of a congressman in America today, either Senate or House representative? It's, it's through the roof. There's guys that, have, you know, they don't even know their name anymore. They still win elections. I'm serious. There's guys that, I mean, they're borderline dementia ridden at this point. They have no clue what's going on anymore. And they still win re-election. So when you say you're dissatisfied with somebody, are you really? I mean, if the congressional approval rate was actually what it is, then we would have Congress turned over in a single election. Even if people stuck with their side, Democrat or Republican, they would say, here's the, the question. To understand poll results, you have to understand the mindset of the person being asked the question. This is what the person is hearing when you say, do you approve of, your, of Congress? Do you approve of the people you don't like in Congress? No. Right? So, because most of these people that say they don't approve of Congress, well, who'd you vote for last year? Either they don't know, or they voted for the person who's there. Well, what about this person? Oh, they're a good one. I meant everybody else. Because they don't think for themselves. Well, who do you vote for? I vote Republican. It's the damn Democrats I don't approve of. It, the, the, the question is not answered as it is asked. The question is answered, do you approve of the overall result Congress is providing to you right now? No, I don't get enough of my stuff. Because the average American has their head inserted deeply up their ass. The average American, if their head was represented by their fist, they're up their ass past the elbow. Okay? That's where the average American is. And when the average American says, I don't like Obama, or I don't like Bush, or it's not, I don't like them for what they're doing. I want more of my shit shoved down the throat of my fellow Americans. Now, why do we approve of the military? Well, first of all, as long as you live in this country, in general, the military doesn't do anything to make your life individually miserable. The military is not running the spy operations. That's the NSA, the CIA, the FBI. It's not the military. They might support it here and there, but overall, they got other shit to do. So, first of all, you're in a situation where the Congress is causing you grief, and the military isn't. So, of course, you would have a favor. But but the real reality is this is just more marketing to brainless morons. You go tell, especially especially right-wing conservatives, all soldiers are not heroes. And they will have the same violent reaction if you tell a bunch of liberal Democrats all teachers aren't heroes. And both sides are freaking mental morons. Of course all soldiers aren't heroes. I knew guys in the military that were freaking morons. And if you've served in the military, you know guys you serve with that are freaking idiots. You're thinking, well, how did this guy get in? Why is this person here? And we all serve with people that are ego freaks. They were more worried about themselves than the team. They're not heroes. 
We serve with people that they, they just they were there because they didn't have anything else to do. And it really didn't matter to them what they were doing at all. They're not heroes. The military has real heroes. And if you've served, you're not offended by this statement that not everybody that served is a hero. Because you probably know at least one that was. And you know how freaking insulting it is to that one to pat 80 on the head that never did shit. And didn't care. Yes, we have soldiers that don't give a shit. It's just a job to them. Most of them are not in combat arms. Most of the guys in combat arms, if you're willing to get shot at, you got to believe in what you're doing. Some of them get led there by recruiters and stuff like that and video game culture and all. But in the end, in the end, when you stick your hand up and say, I do solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States, and you know that your job is going to be to be shot at, especially in a time of war, you got to believe in what you're doing. And those guys, those guys have each other's back, and those guys risk and lay down their life for other people, and that is the definition of a hero. But it doesn't make everyone a hero. And it doesn't mean that every one of them sent into a war zone is a hero. And it doesn't mean that everyone that's sent into a war, was a war zone does their job with honor and integrity the way that they're supposed to be. But you've been marketed. Our best and brightest are soldiers. Our best and brightest are teachers. I'd like our best and brightest to like cure cancer. Seriously. Right? I don't want them teaching kindergarten and I don't want them throwing grenades at people. I'd like our best and brightest... To, like, cure cancer, solve the world's food problems, figure out new clean energy. That's I, I, I don't know about you, but the best and brightest minds, the smartest people on the planet, we want them teaching kindergartners how to freaking know their colors? We want them running and moving with M16s? Or do we want them solving the problems in the world? The reason for the schism in the number is you've been marketed to the American people All soldiers are heroes. All soldiers are heroes is bullshit. All cops are heroes. Bullshit. Many soldiers and police officers are heroes. Truth. And we'll see how high those approval numbers are if this military is ever turned on its own people. And let me speak to another segment of you people out there. I hear you all the time saying stupid shit. I do. I really do. This is what it is. I believe that two-thirds of our military would side with us and follow Oath Keepers. Well, first of all, you're probably not an Oath Keeper. And you probably don't know jack diddly shit about Oath Keepers. And as a founding member of Oath Keepers, I get to tell you that. Okay? Second of all, who is us? Who the hell is us? The liberty movement is one of the most divided, fragmented movements that's ever existed in history. It's why we can get so little done. So which us are they going to stand with? Third, what do you mean stand with us? Do you think our military will not use force to put down insurrection and rebellion when people are burning our cities to the ground because they're pissed off because their food stamp check didn't come through? You don't understand the military at all then. You tell the average soldier there's a bunch of people out there peacefully pr protesting. You see them out there? Yeah. We want you to go shoot them all. They're not going to do it. You got riots going on and stuff like that. You suit these guys up and send them in. They'll bust heads. They'll bust heads like any cop. And they'll believe in what they're doing. And on some levels, they have a reason to believe in what they're doing. What would you have them do? Stand by while they burn the cities to the ground? You think that's acceptable? You people don't know what the hell you're talking about. 
You people that think, oh, well, the, the military, they're all just guys like us, and they'll all just come onto our side. You have no idea what you're talking about. They are guys just like us. They have families they have to feed. They believe in their country. Maybe a little too much right now. If you have a couple thousand or tens of thousands of people burning Atlanta, rioting in the streets, killing and raping people, committing felonies and high crimes of treason and rebellion and insurrection. That's what those are. That's acts of insurrection. You think your military is just going to show up and go, hey, way to go, guys. You're an idiot if you think that. Do you think we'll have a military coup, though, is the question. No. No. No way. You don't understand. You don't understand. This nation is not screaming for liberty right now. The people of this country are not screaming for liberty. They're just fighting the other side for their version of tyranny. There is no need for military coups. There is no need to put this nation into FEMA camps. There is no need for any of this. All of you throughout this country, by and large, Now, many of you listen to the show or not, but this is for America in general. Most people today are slaves that have fastened their own chains around their own wrists, their own neck, and their own feet. And they polish and shine their chains on a daily basis. They're very proud of their chains. They point to the chains of their neighbor and say, look, he is the one trying to enslave others. Look at these chains. He wants to put those chains on me. But if you try to pull that chain off of that slave, he'll kill you. He'll slaughter you for trying to take away the tyranny that holds him back. There is no need to enslave a nation that has willingly already enslaved itself. You can't show me anywhere where you can prove to me that even 10% of Americans even think for themselves anymore. All I have to do to, to counter your argument is show you Facebook. Like if. Like, 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 like. Uh, like a bunch of freaking idiots. Well, it's against the guy I hate more, so it must be like, like, like. You're stupid in the comment section. Oh, okay, you've made your point. There's no independent thinking in this country anymore. There's none. There's no need for a military takeover. No, it's not right for a military takeover. You know what it's right for? More tyranny, just like you're already getting, wrapped up in a bow and shoved in your ass. That's what it's right for. More of the same. Everything that we're losing, we're going to keep losing the exact same way we've been losing it because wake the hell up. It's working. When you're trying to accomplish something and it's working really, really good, you don't quit. You keep doing it. You keep increasing it. You increase its speed and you increase its virulence. That's why they continue to polarize you more and more into the D and the R, the great dichotomy of idiocy. That's why they're doing it. Because it's working, stupid. Hello? Like, 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 like. Idiots. Think for yourself. I'm not picking on the collar at all here. I want to be clear about that. But why, you got to ask yourself, why do so many people hate congressmen and love the military? Because nobody ran a marketing campaign to tell you the congressmen were heroes. 
Congressmen run their own marketing campaigns to tell you they'll give you more shit if you vote for them. And the other guy is an evil, fictitious, villainous asshole that murders children for sport. That's political advertising. I am a great guy. I care about you. I might even use your first name someday. You might think it's you, but it'll be someone else. Please give me money. Please vote for me. And when I get elected, I'll give you all the things I've promised. And when I can't give them to you, it will be because, because of evil sons of bitches like my opponent over here. My opponent murdered 57 children yesterday with a baseball bat. He is a scumbag. He has taken money from lobbyists, the same lobbyists I have. But his lobbyists are worse. If you elect him... Your grandmother will be abducted from the emergency room, hauled out in the street, and knifed to get her out of the way. Vote for me. Why do we have a negative view of congressmen? Because there's not a single congressman that's ever got elected making a case that he was actually good. If I will give you shit, and my opponent sucks. So therefore, we're left with a conclusion at least half of these people suck. The problem with that conclusion is it's only half correct. They all suck. They all suck. There's not an honest man in office anymore. The closest is probably Rand Paul, and he's a slick-ass politician. He is not his daddy, folks. He is not his daddy. There's never been a guy in the halls of our con Congress with the honesty and, and integrity, whether you agree with him or not, than Ron Paul, and there probably never will be again. The Ron Paul revolution is not happening because the average American doesn't want it to. Quit believing. Quit believing it's them on the hill. It's all the people around you. They're very happy in their misery, and they don't want you screwing it up for them, so focus on your own life. Let's take another one. Jack, a quick question. What is the difference in using straw and hay in your garden? I know the difference between straw and hay, but does it matter if you use hay in building your garden, I realize there's probably seeds, but um, and when you were talking about the different layers, that's my question. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. And oh, something where I can get into something that actually matters, like growing our own food and providing liberty in our own lives and get out of this mode of just wanting to strangle idiots. Um, so you know the difference between straw and hay, but not everybody listening to this may know the difference between straw and hay. So um, I'm going to explain that, and then I'm going to give you your answer. So straw, folks, is when we grow any, basically a grass or grain to the point where it produces a seed. And we harvest the seed head, and then we take what's left as a stalk, a hollow stalk, as straw. Okay, Hay is where we grow quite often the same product, but before it puts a seed head on, we cut it and we hay it. And that means the hay is not a hollow stalk. It's a, it's a leafy green uh, grass blade or a sword of grass or something like that. Or, uh, it's, it's vetch before it puts on its pea pods or what have you and makes hay. And, and the reason we do that is, okay, so let's, let's look at something like uh, a wheat plant. So wheat grows in this big, tall grass. And cows would be very happy to eat that all the way up until the point it puts on a seed head. It puts on a seed head, a lot of the leaf matter dies back, and the, 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 the piece that goes up and makes the head, or the pieces that go up and make the head, a lot of the energy that's in them dumps out of them, goes into the seed head, and is then used to grow the seed. It takes a lot of energy 
for a plant to produce a seed, especially a grain to produce a grain head. So then, you know, what happens then if it's a perennial that dies back and it regrows from the root? If it's an annual, hopefully a lot of that seed ends up in the ground and reseeds. And that's that's how that plant works and how it functions. And it's simply a, a function of timing when we cut that, whether we end up with hay or straw. In many instances, as I said, it, it's not usually, but it could be the same plant. Usually hay is for more perennial grasses and things like that, and straw is for a more conventional grain crops, but it could be the same thing. So, well, you know, obviously that means we would feed an animal hay, but we wouldn't feed an animal straw. We'd use it for something like bedding because there's not a lot of nutritional value there. So when it comes to mulching with straw and hay, There's two schools of thought. With straw, since I've cut the seed head off, I have less seeds, and therefore I'm going to get less germinated seeds, and therefore there's less weed problems, especially since generally when I'm using straw, I'm taking wheat from a wheat field or rice from a rice field. So there's already been some weed suppression of some sort, whether it's organic or conventional, there's been some suppression of weeds. Where if I'm doing hay, the only suppression I'm usually doing with hay is I'm either doing really high-quality hay, And then I'm doing weed suppression. But a lot of times with hay, feeding cows and goats and stuff like that, I'm going to suppress anything that I think might be toxic, like horse nettle or something like that. And otherwise, it's just basically a wild perennial salad bar of grasses cut at the right time and rolled up and made an A. So there's more potential for weed seeds. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I've seen plenty of weeds and stray seed grow up and sprout out of straw. I've seen plenty of straw bales, if they're left in a place where they're not kept dry and they get wet, stuff start growing right out of the center of them. So I, I don't think it's really that big a difference there, so I'm not going to worry about it there. So then the next one that we make a decision with is going to be economically. And generally, straw costs less than hay. And if you can find old rotted hay that went bad that somebody's getting rid of, then you got you know kind of the best of both worlds from where I'm going to go next. And the other reason you might use hay. But, but the reality is usually you're going to pay more for hay And hay is more of a food product for livestock. So most people use straw simply from an economic standpoint. Then the next thing is the value of nutrient to the soil from the organic matter itself that you're putting to the soil. So think about this. If I take straw, which has dumped most of its nutrient into the seed head, which is now gone, and I put that on the soil, I only have so much nutrient to go back into the soil. All right? If I have hay, which is high quality enough with enough nutrient to feed a cow or a horse or a goat or a sheep, then I have more nutrient also to go back to the soil. So all things being equal to me personally, I would prefer to mulch with hay over straw. And I think the weed thing is canceling. The, the straw has you know a lower seed count because it's cut after the seed is harvested, but the hay has a lower seed count because it's cut before the seed is formed. So I, I don't think the advantage is really quite there. But economically, I tend to use straw because it's significantly less expensive. In my market, anyway, I will pay about half for straw what I pay for hay. If they were equally priced, I would probably use hay. But then there's another consideration. The fact that I'm now taking a product that could be fed to an animal and putting it to the ground, I kind of would rather cycle that through the animal. Because if, if, that, if I take that out of the circulation and I don't cycle it through an animal, somebody somewhere has to grow something else so that that animal can be fed. 
right? So I don't know that haying is the greatest process in the world, but there are areas I think that you need some hay to make livestock viable. I know there's proponents of all grazing that will say that's not the case, and I know that even them when pressed, we go a little bit of hay in the winter. I mean, Greg Judy's a perfect example. I love Greg. I met him at Permaculture Boys. He's the salt of the earth guy. He is the number, and he'll even admit, yeah, we have a little bit that we keep on hand for those certain days when they just won't go out to pasture and it's the coldest time of the year and you know everything's iced up and frozen. But it'll also tell you, but other than those very few days, that cow can easily get through snow to get the grass underneath it. And that grass is nice preserved in that nice cool bed of snow. So I, I, I don't know that haying is – I will say this. I don't think haying should be done at the rate that it is currently being done. But given that it is being done, it's a little difficult for me personally to take a food quality resource and turn it into a, a mulch quality resource when there's so many other things we can use for mulch. But I wouldn't fault anybody for it, and I think your results might be better, to be honest. Let's take another one. Jack, what hardware and software would you recommend for interviewing someone? Uh, would the hardware and software you use to do your podcast work for interviews? Details are I'm going to be spending about a week with my dad in August, and uh, I'd really like to just as we're sitting around the kitchen table talking to record some of it. I missed that opportunity with my grandparents, and I really regret it. Um, I've tried to record my dad before with an iPhone and with a little pocket recorder, and neither one worked very well. The quality just wasn't good. You know, there is some noise in the background with kids and family and stuff. Um, and I could get away for a few hours, but, the, you know, I'm just, for the volume, I'm just going to have to put up with some background noise. Um, he, you know, he's got some amazing stories, I think. Uh, he, he raised his own pigs at 12 years old, castrated them with a pocket knife, um, then he later went to Germany when the wall was still up in the army. Uh, later he um, treated people as they came back from Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, anyway, he's just had an amazing life, and I'd like to talk to him about his parents. His dad was a blacksmith. His grandfather was a homesteader. Anyways, um, uh, thanks a lot, and let me know. Um, I'm thinking a microphone for a, for a laptop but uh, I would have no idea what software would work. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, what I use day-to-day -day will work, and it'll work fine, but with some caveats I'll cover. I use a Samson S-A-M-S-O-N-C-O-1-U studio condenser microphone with about a $100-$120 microphone. uses a USB, plugs into just about any PC computer. It works just fine. I use software to record called Audacity, A-U-D-A-C-I-T-Y, Audacity. It's free. You can download it. Most podcasters use it, except for when I am producing an interview show where I use Pamela uh, along with Skype. I always use Audacity for every podcast that, that I've, I've ever done since I got out of the car and stopped using a, a handheld recorder. But here's the deal. Your problem in past recordings probably has nothing to do with the little recorder, and it has probably very little or nothing to do with the iPhone. Those are probably not your problems. The number one thing is the microphone, and then even with that, it's getting the person to speak up into the microphone. Not away from the microphone like this, and not away from the microphone like this, and 
not over the top of the microphone like this and not, well, yeah, you know, uh, it's funny you ask about that because blah, 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 and they just fade off. And because people are intimidated by microphones and they move further and further and further and further and further and further and further away from them constantly, so much so that I have a rule now. I've tried it once or twice, and I, I don't break this rule ever again. I will not interview people in person unless they are professionals, unless they've done interviews before, they're comfortable with interviews, and they're comfortable with microphones, and especially when I'm using a single microphone, which is what I usually have to do because I don't have mixer boards and stuff like that, where they're comfortable with me leaning and answering a question and then backing out and them getting up on the microphone with a closed gate and answering it. It's going to be tough to get your dad to do this and older people are even worse about it so i've had several people some of you listen all the time and you're good friends i'll come over to your house and we can do this interview i'm like no i'll call you on the phone that's why i won't do it because i'm sitting there looking at audacity i'm watching my audio right and i'm watching these big blurbs of audio and then the person starts talking i see little tiny signs little itty bitty bitty tiny quiet blah, 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 blah. and they won't talk louder and you keep pushing the microphone at them hello and they won't do it. They, they, I'm telling you, this is going to be your biggest problem. So there are some things that you can do to combat this, and and here's what I'm going to suggest. Uh, number one, put the microphone closer to the person you're interviewing to your, than to yourself. You're going to be willing to ask the question loud, and it'll be much easier if it's muffled a little bit to understand what you asked than what the person answered. So put the microphone very close to the person. If they try to get away, push their chair in, tie it to the table, Chase them with the microphone. Do not let them get away from the microphone. Turn the gain up to what's reasonable. Have them talk a little bit, play it back and listen to it, and if it's not loud enough, turn the gain up. You can only play with the gain so much, though. Um, I'm going to warn everybody right now. The sound's going to get a lot louder, even when I run it back through its compression and lower it, and it's going to sound like crap here for a couple seconds, just so I can make my point. Okay, so I, I now have the microphone gain up to 10. As you can hear, it sounds like crap, and it's probably got a lot of noise in the background and, and what have you. And you can only do this, and you're going to get distortion, and you're going to get... I'm going to go back down now. Okay, so now I'm back down to a, a more reasonable level for recording audio. Um, and I'm a loud person. See, I can actually... I'll sit back from the microphone. Right now, I've just come back from the microphone about three feet Uh, where I'm not optimum. And you can probably tell, but you still probably hear me clearly because I project. Most people you interview are not going to project, and that's going to make them hard to hear. So you want a microphone close to the person and get them closer than you are so that when they're half your volume, they're twice your recording level. All right. Now, you can use a laptop and the microphone I use. Again, it's called a Samson CO1U. I really like it. It'll work well for you. If you have an iPhone or you have a Mac, I have a microphone that I think is far superior, and it has a feature that's great for what you're trying to do. The microphone is made by Apogee, A-P-O-G-E-E. -E. It's an Apogee professional microphone for iPhone, iPad, and Mac. And it makes wonderful quality recordings to an iPad or an iPhone. And it's again, it's not the, the the MP3 player, it's not the iPhone, it's the microphone, and it's the the proximity of the microphone and the volume of the speaker that you're having issues with. 
I would say this is like a $200 product, but for what you're doing, I think it would be better. One of the best things it has on it is a, a gain uh, switch on the side of it. And it, the quality of the sound of this is better than my Samson. Uh, I'm probably going to start producing on my Mac soon, and I'll use this microphone instead when I do. Um, the quality we got when we did some field interviews with it using an, uh, an, an iMac, uh, and what, uh, what do you call it? The, the Macintosh lap book, the, the i, whatever it is. I don't know. MacBook, right? It was, was just beautiful. It was every bit as good as the studio stuff I do here. Um, but it has that little, little switch on the side for gain up and down, a little rotary switch. And that means that when he's talking and you know it's not loud enough, you can just, without any kind of messing with the device, you can just reach down to the microphone and turn it up. And that means you can actually back it down a little bit when you ask your question, you know you're being louder, and you can turn it back up. And you can probably be okay turning that thing just about all the way up. Test it first and see what works best. It's a little smaller microphone. It still looks kind of fancy, uh, you know, but it is, it is smaller than the, uh, than the Samson, and that might be a little less intimidating. Uh, and that's probably, if you have an iPhone or an iPad, that is probably what I would use. And I think you'll be much more happy with it. Um, you, you're probably not going to find a deal on this thing. Apogee seems to do a really good job of protecting their distribution channel. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it right from the Apple Store. You can buy it on their website. Same price everywhere. Um, so it's an expensive product, but let me move on to now what you're doing. I think it's incredibly important what you're doing. And I think one way or another, you should find a solution that works for you, your budget, your time, your ability, and you should do it. And I, I think that we need more people doing it. We need more people doing it. I'll tell you, if you have to, get a USB headset, okay? Like, like looks like something you do phone support with. It has a microphone, a boom mic in, in, in it. Put it on his head. Ask him a question. Write down what you asked him. And, and that way he can't get away from the microphone because it's attached to his body. Put a lapel mic on him, whatever. Get it up next to him so you can hear what he's saying. Because what he's saying is what's important. Studio production quality interview is not important. Uh, being able to hear the words of the prior generation who's no longer with us 10 to 15 years from now when we're really going to freaking need it. Man, if anybody's doing God's work, that's it. That needs to be done. I mean, there's so many guys, just actually very few people left, really, that really are from the World War II generation and know what they know and know what they've been through and preserve that, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and most of these guys are at a point now where they're going to tell you what they really think and not worry about offending anybody anymore. And frankly, we have a big problem in America. Nobody says what the hell they think because everybody's afraid to offend somebody and bend somebody's nose the wrong way. Um, we, have a, we have a lot of pain in our society today because no one will tell the truth anymore. And if I've offended you today... That's part of the problem. You shouldn't be offended because somebody tells you what they think. Especially when the, the, the follow-up to it is, if you don't agree, figure out why you believe what you be, think for yourself. And, and most of these older guys have given themselves permission to, t to tell things the way they really see it. And, and we need to preserve that. So good for you for doing that. But that's, that's I would use one of those two solutions, personally. That's based on my knowledge. And like I said, if nothing else, get a headset with a boom mic on it, plug them into a computer, and just talk. Ask them. You know, lean close to them when you ask the question to try to get your side recorded. But honestly, you can learn enough editing and audacity. You can record your question, write your questions down. You could, you know, record them post production and splice it all together. It's not that hard. Let's take, uh, in fact, it's 20 minutes on YouTube. You learn everything you need to do to, uh, to do the basic editing and audacity. 
And uh, you can put those files out in MP3. You'll need to get a thing called Flame DLL uh, plugin for Audacity after you download it. But it'll tell you the first time you try to generate an MP3 that it needs that. And you can look it up and get that. Um, let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. The Yellowstone supervolcano was thrust back in the news this week uh, due to renewed activity. In fact, it's been uh, had many interesting developments over the last five or six months or so. Well, you teach us to prepare for primarily for events that have the highest likelihood of happening in our lifetime, how would you suggest someone prepare for Yellowstone's unlikely eruption? Thanks. I might sound a little bit curmudgeon today, but you do not prepare for a Yellowstone volcanic eruption. You don't even worry about it. You just don't. Because, you're, 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 one, you're, you're looking at a one-in-a-cabillion event actually happening, and two... Um, depending on your proximity, your problems are over because you're dead. And then for the rest of the world, you're, you're talking a new ice age, you're talking death and, and, and mass uh, loss of life on a level you can't even comprehend. Um, you're, you're talking something on par with a comet strike. You're talking the hammer of God. And you can't live your life worried or obsessed about something like that. Because it's infinitesimally small that that potential exists, and there ain't shit you're going to do to actually be 100% prepared for something like that anyway. So, I, yes, I tell you to start out at the basics, being prepared for a job loss, a break-in, a local storm, and I say keep building on that. Well, there's nothing more to be done. I mean, all you can do is increase how much food you have, how much energy capacity you have, etc. That's all you can do. So if you're worried about a big disaster like that, you need a one-year minimum sustainability independently. And at that point, maybe society will have its shit together enough to be part of the, the long-term solution. Maybe not. You want me to tell you, oh, it'll all be okay if you get this thing or do that or dig a deep enough hole or whatever? It won't. It won't. If this planet gets hit by a comet, most of the people on it are going to die, including you and me. No matter how much of a prepper we are, Most of us are dead. Yep. All the stuff about this bunker that, and this bunker this, and this guy's going to do that, and this guy has enough AK-47s and all, it's all bullshit. If something that catastrophic happens, within the first 24 hours, you'll probably be dead. If that happens, I don't think most people understand the scope of a Yellowstone eruption. You're talking about a caldera, which is the hole the stuff comes out of, about the size of the state of Rhode Island, and now they think it might be bigger. Rhode Island might be a small state, but it's a big-ass volcano. I think it might be significantly bigger than that. I mean, if, that, if, you, if you think about what one little shitty volcano in Iceland did to air travel over Europe, you're talking about the, the, the ash fallout thousands of miles away will land on the roofs of buildings. Inevitably, storms will follow. And if the weight of the dry ash doesn't collapse the building onto the people inside it, the wet ash will. There's a, an interesting documentary. It's called When Yellowstone Erupts. And it's on Discovery or Nagio or something like that. And it, 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 or it's If Yellowstone Erupts or something like that. And they go through the scenario, what would it be like? And the, the eruption that happens in that is like, well, kind of like, well, this is as good as we could have hoped for. It's bad, but it could have been worse. And it's really, really bad. You got starvation globally. 
You got pestilence and disease globally. I'm going to be prepared for that. No, you're not. You do what you can do within the life that you have and the means that you have to do the best for yourself. I mean, the reality is you could die today. Odds are, as big as this audience is, somebody that hears my words will die this week. It's a sombering thought. It's probably true. And when you go to big people like Rush Limbaugh, I guarantee you, you know, reaching 4 million plus people a day or something like that, or he's more than that. I think Beck's reaching 4 million people. This guy's reaching 4 million people a day. Like one person at least that hears his voice every day is dead. Does that mean if you listen to Glenn Beck, you should plan to be dead tomorrow? No. There's a lot of shit going on in life that might be really important and enjoyable that you need to be pl planning for so that it doesn't become miserable because, well, I thought I was going to be dead. Somebody had to die. I figured it was going to be me. The reality is the only thing you can do to prepare for these bigger disasters is more of the same of what you do to prepare for the smaller ones. Means of defense, means of providing your own food, energy, water, comfort items. Dealing with your waste, your health, sanitation needs. And you are not going to be prepared for a Yellowstone to erupt. I'm going to say it one more time just so everybody understands me. You are not going to be prepared if Yellowstone erupts. The most freaked out, tricked out, doomsday bunker prepper is not prepared for if Yellowstone erupts. They maybe do, do better than the average person. Maybe, depending on where they're at. To the <sighs> dead, right? Because it's not like you're gonna, you're gonna get a, fuck, uh, a phone call, right? You're not gonna get a phone call. Hey, dude, Yellowstone's about to erupt. We may know, we may not know if the thing blows its top in advance. Odds are, ain't gonna happen. I can't spend my time worrying about it. I got too much living, too much life, too much world to be focused on that one thing or any one thing of that size. The reality is, through thousands of years of human history, disasters of the scope of what you're talking about are very tiny filament. And one would do well to be prepared for that which is likely above that which is unlikely. And you just keep doing more. I'm not saying to stop. I'm not saying when you're prepared to have the most basic disasters... Quit, being, quit, quit, quit prepping for more. I'm not. I'm just saying that accept the fact that there's a certain fatalistic outlook that you have to have. I mean, the ones I love the most are, well, Jesus is coming. Well, your problems are over, man. Relax. If what you say is true, you can just... It's all in the Bible. This has all been prophesied. The world's going to end next week. Cool. You should be happy as crap. Right? You're going to get raptured or some something like that, I guess. I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm not worried about that, but if you are, then you should be happy. I think what's even worse is the ones that are like, well, since Jesus is coming, I don't have to worry about being prepared. Yeah, check out the people that tried that in the past. They all ended up really disappointed. Really, really disappointed. No, the way you prepare for the big disaster is get prepared for all the little ones first, and then get prepared for all the mid-sized ones. Then get prepared for the long-term disaster that we're in the middle of right now. The destruction of the middle class in North America. 
which isn't hap isn't going to happen. It's happened and it's getting worse. And then keep building from there and build as much resilience in your life as you can. It's still going to come. I don't care what the disaster is. Food, water, shelter, energy, security, health and sanitation. Those six things. It will never change. There is no disaster where it won't be those six things. From the biggest to the smallest and everything in between, it will be those six things. So if you think Yellowstone's going to erupt and it makes you sleep better at night, be prepared to live in a hole in the ground for five years. I just think most of those resources, the time and the money and the energy, could be better spent in other ways. And I honestly think that most of the world is dead if that happens. You asked. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Simon from Montreal, Canada. I was wondering your thoughts on UBI, or Universal Basic Income, for America. Get rid of welfare, food stamps, and all other safety nets and the huge bureaucracy around them and give a monthly stipend to every citizen to get by on. The same amount for the rich and poor alike. As more and more jobs are lost to uh, machine automation, it's seen as a way to keep society and the economy running, working towards a world where we're all ultimately working less. The Swiss are considering this kind of system already, so what do you think? There's, of course, a redistributive aspect to this you probably wouldn't be into, but I wonder if this would be at least a partial interim solution. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, there's probably stupider solutions to our current problems, but I haven't heard one recently. It's probably the the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. All it is is mass extortion and theft from those who produce given on to those who don't do jaggedly shit. Because for this system to work, all the people that actually are net producers have to lose in it. It's, we already have it. It's called a tax return. We, we already have this. Producers get some of their money back um, by proving that they didn't make as much as the government says they did through deductions. And consumers suck at the tit of everything that's left. All you're proposing is a recharacteristic of the distribution system. Because, no, everybody doesn't get the same. Even in even a model, okay, we're going to give a universal base income of every person of $30,000 a year for the basic needs for life. Okay, well, that's not going to work. Because most people that are making, let's say, in that model that are making sixty or $70,000 for that model to work are going to have to pay more than their UBI and income tax for it to work. You have to have losers for there to be winners in that system. And, and let's face it. If the UBI is high enough that I actually can live on it, why would I work? I have to be stupid to work. The, the only way this has ever actually functionally worked has been where a state, or a state, upper or lower case, because Alaska sort of does this, has had a natural resource owned, managed, and run by the state that they are capable of selling outside of the state for enough income to bring enough new money in to actually be able to pay the distribution scheme. So in other words, Saudi Arabia can do this. I think they do. And they still have a lot of poor-ass, unhappy people there. Libya did this. I don't know if they still do, but they did it under Muammar Gaddafi. Remember that evil guy? Yeah, everybody in Libya that was a Libyan citizen got a UBI. And that country was still a shithole. But they were able to do it because there's not that many people there. They produce a shitload of oil. They get a shitload of money in for the oil. They have enough profit from the oil to create profit so they can create profit sharing. That's what UBI in a country like that is. 
Our country doesn't do this. We actually believe that individuals have right to property here, at least a little bit yet. So most of the industry is privately owned. So you can only do UBI with publicly owned industry because you can't do it with taxes. The numbers don't work out. We'll just tax the rich. They'll leave, dumbass. They won't pay. I'm not saying any more on this one. It's a stupid idea. Let's take another question. Jack, Clinton in Northwest Ohio here. Question for you regarding tax and uh, income tax. I've heard a lot of people talk about uh, earning more money, getting bumped up into the next tax bracket. My understanding is that every $50, there's a new tax bracket, and they charge you a little bit more tax. Uh, if if I'm right, okay, all right, I just don't get it. But if I'm if that's not the case, or, or if they're talking about something different, if you could explain that, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. No, that's that's not how it works. Though I can understand how people, especially people filing on a 1040EZ, would come to that conclusion. When you file the most basic type of tax return, the type of return that most Americans file because they don't itemize, they don't have enough income to justify it, you fill in some basic forms off of W-2s and standard exemptions and things like that, and then it says your income is. And unless you're using some kind of a computer program, if you're still doing it old school style, there's a book every year, and you open that book, and it says if your income was X to X, pay X, and if it's Y to Y, pay Y, and if it's Z to Z, pay Y. So, and it looks like it moves in like $50 increments. And those are taxes due, not tax brackets. Okay? So, in other words, it's doing the calculation for you based on some averages, and it's saying basically if you're at the bottom you're getting a little bit screwed. If you're at the top, you're getting a little bit unscrewed. But in the end, this is the amount of money we'll take for people in this, this, this income bracket. But let's say that that number was 10%. Well, it would say if your income was uh, $40,000 to $41,000, you're going to pay $400, $4,000 in taxes, $4,000. And that's what I'm saying. Like if the guy at, at $4,100... Uh, and maybe he's supposed to be paying, uh, or 41000 should be paying $4,100, and he's in that little, and it's probably, that's why it's $50 instead. So, you know, if your income was 40000 to $40,050, it's going to say then you owe $4,000 if the tax rate was 10%. Okay? Now, here's where tax rates get confusing. Let me give you the the t actual tax brackets in the United States right now and tell you what they do and do not mean. So they're basically this way. $9,075 and below, your effective tax bracket's 10%. Okay? Now, the thing is you're going to get an individual deduction before that. So a person that makes $9,000 is not going to pay 10% of $9,000. They're going to pay 10% of whatever's left after deductions. Right, so the person is paying taxes on nine thousand dollars at ten percent. That's how much income's left after deductions. So that's what these numbers are. So when you go above nine thousand seventy-five, up to thirty-six thousand nine hundred, you pay fifteen percent. Okay, when you go above thirty-six nine, all the way up to eighty-nine three fifty, you pay twenty-five percent. When you go above eighty-nine three fifty, all the way up to one eighty-six. Okay, this is for single filing, by the way. Just to give you, just to give you an idea how this works. So, from eighty nine three three fifty or three sixty up to one oh one eighty six three fifty twenty eight percent, one eighty six three fifty up to four hundred five thousand thirty three percent, 
405,000 and some change. 405, 100 and above, up to 406, 750, 35%. And if you happen to have reportable income in excess of $406,750, you now pay the maximum tax bracket of 39.6%. So, if you are a person that made $100,000 last year in taxable income, you're in the 28% tax bracket. Does that mean you pay 28% tax on $100,000 or $28,000? No. This is one place where the right wing that says we're overtaxed is disingenuous when they say, well, you're paying a third of your income to the government then. You're probably paying a third of your income to the government, but you ain't doing it from income tax. Because here's what happens. On the first $9,075 in income, you pay 10%. On the income between nine and $36,900, you pay 15%. On the income between 36 and 89,350, you pay 25 percent, and on the income between 89,350 and 100,000 even, you pay 28 percent. And this creates what's called an effective tax rate. All right. So if if you want to see how that works, if I actually do the numbers and the calculations that I'm not going to put you through listening to on the air, $100,000 in income, taxable income, right now you would pay income tax of $21,176 on. This means that you are in the 28% tax bracket, but your effective tax rate, 21%. Let's see how that works. Let me to just make it more clear. I'll run. The, I'll put pause and I'll do the numbers real quick on $200,000 in income. Okay, if you made $200,000 in, in taxable income, what you actually pay taxes on, right? As a single person in the United States today, you would effectively pay $49,858 in income taxes. Okay, that's 24.93%, right at a quarter of your income. That's just income taxes, though. That's not Social Security. That's not everything else. That's just income tax. But you're in the 33% tax bracket. Let me go up one more time just so you can see the exponential increases and how they work out. Okay, so a person making $300,000 in income, right? And you would think if it would just step up evenly, it doesn't, right? Uh, they will pay a 27.62% tax, effective tax rate on their income, $82,858. But they're in the 33% tax bracket. So you see how this works. It's it's not that once you hit that bracket, you pay that percentage on all the income. You pay that percentage on the income in that bracket. And then you pay lower rates on all the income in the previous brackets. And it's an inherently unfair system. And if you want to know how it's inherently unfair, well, let's see what would happen if you made a million dollars. What if I run the numbers on a million dollars? Uh, you would pay... Um, 35% of your income, $353,000 if you actually earned a million dollars. Well, rich people should pay more. Well, if everybody paid 20%, rich people would pay 200000 That's significantly more than if you made 10000 and paid two hundred. And it's also a very confusing system. There's people right now listening to this going, I don't really understand how this works, and you're not supposed to. That's why I have a book to tell you what the number is so you can see what your return is. That's why they do enough withholding that the average American gets money back. That's how they make it palatable for you. It's inherently inefficient for the government to take your money and give it back to you. It's, it, it, I, I know. Well, they get the money during the year. They don't need the money during the year. 
All that extra money they give back every year, they'd be better off if they never took it in. It's a lot of work. They spend a lot of money giving it forward and back. It's all a pantomime to lure you into it. But no, when you see that book with all of those incomes and all of those taxes associated with the incomes, those aren't new brackets. That's taxes due based on income earned. And that's how the effective tax rate and tax bracket system works. When you hear things like, well, you know, at one time the, uh, the highest tax bracket in the United States was 90%. Well, it was, but that didn't mean that a person making a million dollars, right, paid $900,000 in income tax. They paid significantly less. And at the time that that was the case, it was like an insane amount of money that was taxed at 90%. That's how you sell it to people. What people don't understand is with inflation, you can sit there right now and go, well, I don't care. I don't care what that person making $400,000 a year makes. You know what? In 20 years, $400,000 will be equivalent maybe to $100,000. Maybe. Maybe. But the tax rates are already set in place. Yay, us. USA, USA, we're number one, we're number one. We have the most people in prison, we're number one. We pay the most taxes, we're number one. Yeah, great. Um, we have the, one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world today, and yet our biggest corporations pay less taxes than any companies that have ever existed. The system is gamed, it's rigged. In the words of George Carlin, it's a big effing club and you ain't in it. You know what? I'm going to tell you, there's going to be some bad words in what you're about to hear. But for those that have never heard George Carlin's little thing on this, before I take the last one today, I'm going to play this one for you right now. This is George Carlin, back around 2000, I think. And it's an older bit that he did a lot of times. And it's a comedian telling you the real reason that all of this shit happens. Again, you're going to hear bad words even for me. If you want to skip it, you can do that. It won't hurt my feelings. I'm giving you a serious adult content warning before I introduce to you Mr. George Carlin. This is the reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big, wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. they got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient 
workers, people who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. <laughs> you and I are not in the big club. And by the way, it's the same big club they use to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people. White collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. Before I, like, I take our last call of the day, I don't want to leave you on that alone because there was one bit of hope in there, and if you, snu if you, if you, if you nodded off for a half a second or got too wrapped up in the humor, the, 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 the sad humor of it, you, you might have missed it. Um, when, I, when I tell people these things and I play things like this for people, they say then there's no hope. Well, there's no hope for the masses right now. It's up to the masses when the masses want to wake up. But did you hear the solution in the satirical sad comedy? They, what do they not want? People that can think critically. People that can work things out. People that can think for themselves. If you want the solution, again, you have to stop behaving like a little baby bird in a nest with your mouth open going, puke down my throat, puke down my throat. And you have to start saying, what do I want to know? And you have to get all sides of that issue. And then you have to work out with logic for yourself what's going on. I wasn't going to go into this. If you can tell, I'm a little bit torqued off today. One is just being fed up with being sick. And the other is all the stuff that's going on around me. I'm watching my government lie to us right now on TV yet again. Uh, in, in something that's very dangerous. They could lead us to war with freaking Russia someday. Dumbasses. So here's the lie. I, and I told my wife when this plane got shot down. I said, they're going to blame the Russians. And the Russians have the least to gain from doing this. So they're probably the least likely to do it. In other words, Russia could go in and wipe out what's going on in the Ukraine tomorrow morning if it chose to. It's got military superiority. Notice I did not say moral superiority. I'm not making any moral judgment on what's going on in the part of the world right now. I'm telling you logically, from a mathematical standpoint, from a strategic standpoint, Russia could go in there tomorrow morning and there ain't shit that anybody's going to do about it. NATO will rattle and cry and stay there doing sanctions this and sanctions that and ain't not a damn one of them got it in them to stand up to Russia's military. About the only military that could stand with Russia's military is ours, and we sure as hell can't defeat it. 
Because there's only one place it goes if the two of us go to war and either side gets too close to defeat and doesn't want it, and that's great big giant freaking mushroom clouds in the sky. And that doesn't do anybody any good. So they're too far from us. It's too much not our business. There, there's no way that anybody's really going to interfere, and Russia could use military superiority tomorrow to crack down on Ukraine. Okay, so if they just want to win... And, they, and if they're willing to just murder people, then they can do that. All right? They learn from their time in Afghanistan, though, and they know it doesn't always work out the way you had planned. But in the end, Russia has the strategic upper hand right now. They have more power, and there's not really anything, for all the talks of sanctions and bullshit and hardline talk, that anybody could do about it. And the last thing they need is to give the United States and our allies any reason at all to get further involved, to give them any ammunition, further involvement at all, period. Understand that. They're the last people that want something like this to happen because there's no benefit. Remember, regardless of whether you have malice involved in something or not, the intent to do good for yourself is generally the driver, whether there's malice or not malice. doesn't matter. Russia has its own goals and agendas, and it has what, and they're not a bunch of evil sons of bitches that want to murder children. That is not who the Russian people and the Russian government are. Anybody that tells you that is lying to your face or is bought into the lies being told to you by your TV. Russians are dramatically logical people. I'm not saying they're morally superior in any way. I think they've got some real hardliner problems with some morality issues over there. They're probably the most homophobic nation on planet Earth yet today. At least it's not driven by religious components of it. And they've got some really messed up laws that apply to that because you're policing somebody's independent choice in their life. But from a standpoint of dealing with other nations, Russia has always been a dramatically logical country. And they don't do things stupid willy-nilly that weaken their position. So I don't think Russia shot that plane down. Right? So now it's, well, separatists did it. Okay? Separatists did it. Now, the Russian separatists are the Russians. They have just as little to gain. The last thing the separatists want is a greater backing of force of the Ukraine government. So there's no interest for the separatists for this to happen either. There's no benefit to them to shoot down an airliner 33,000 feet in the air at random, at all. Now, the Ukrainian government is the one with something to gain here. I'm not saying they did it. I'm saying if I, they all use the same equipment, they all use the same missile systems, okay? They all use the same equipment because they're all part of the former Soviet bloc. And they all have the same gear. And the people with the most to gain from this happening is the Ukrainian. And I'm Ukrainian. My family's from the Ukraine. So don't give me no shit about me just being, you know, hating Ukrainians or something like that. That's stupid talk. So the most logical conclusion, all things being equal, is Ukraine did this. Now, we don't know that. And, and that case alone can't be used... To make a determination of what really happened, we need more information. And that's why I wasn't going to talk about this yet. But here's where the government's lying. So Oliver North was out running his mouth the other day, saying that you had to be a highly trained crew to do this. 
This is extremely technically advanced equipment. You can't just teach it. So the, the connotation that, that North and the Fox News ilk are bringing right now, and, and this is one MSNBC and CBS and all these companies, they will all unite in this message to you. This is what they'll, they'll, they'll find common ground here. The message is the separatists couldn't have done it. Because they don't have the skill or the knowledge. I mean, you can't just give people this stuff and hand them a manual and have them doing this a few months later. They, it's impossible. They need advanced training. And here's the big lie. This is where you go, well, it could be a lie, but I got perception bias because I'm pissed off and I know something's not right here and I don't want to go too far with it. So they come out and they say the Patriot missile system that we have is the equivalent. And it, the Patriot missile system, when you go to school for Patriot missile in the United States, it's 26-week school. And that's indicative of the amount of time and knowledge necessary to learn how to operate a system like this. Well, anybody that's ever been to a military school knows that when you go to military school, your actual job is maybe 25% of what you learn, and the other 75% is military conditioning. The actual functionality, how this shit works and how to do it, is maybe 25% of your training. When do you do it? When are you authorized to do it? You're still learning how to polish your shoes in tech school. You're still being inspected. You're still learning how to be a soldier. The mechanical component to your job is maybe 25% of your school, unless it's very specific, advanced academics. So there's linguist cryptologist training that's done in California where these guys go to school for two years, and they're probably spending, in their first year, 50% learning how to do their job, and in the second year, 80%, because it's very, very academic. But in most things, that you're a year or less of training, you're maybe spending a quarter of the training on doing it. So out of 26 weeks, right, we're down to like seven weeks, eight weeks, maybe necessary to actually know how all the things work, to do everything it can do. Not just the point of that one slow-flying, all right, because relatively speaking, you're talking about a slow-flying aircraft, 450, 470 mile an hour passenger jet on a known course. To be able to point it at it and shoot that down, you probably learn that in a couple weeks. This is what North says, though. This is where you know it's complete and total bullshit. And I'll tell you, based on what we know of Russian military technology, why we know that. So they've already acknowledged it's 26 weeks to learn how to use a Patriot system. In our country. The most advanced missile system probably of its type out there in the world today. North says it takes two years to learn how to use this thing. The connotation being it can't even be Russian separatists in the Ukraine. This had to be Russian trained technicians. Because this hasn't been going on long enough for the separatists to know how to work it yet. We must blame the Russians above all things. And now I'm calling foul. I'm calling complete bullshit, and here's why. Anybody that studied the Cold War knows the Russian philosophy on military equipment. Simple. We built, in planes like the F-16 and the F-18, the most advanced aircraft in the world with the highest capabilities at their times. Planes that could do things that man... You know, 10 years before that plane was conceived of, couldn't even conceive of a plane that would ever do this. The Russians built MiGs. A few of them ended up with some capabilities that we couldn't quite comprehend ourselves. But in the end, the MiG wasn't quite the performer that the F-16 or the F-18 or the F-14 Tomcat was. Not quite. 
Almost. But we had to send guys to basically college to learn how to work on a freaking F-16. And the Russians built a plane that could be maintained with a kid with six months of training with a general toolbox that most people would use to maintain a truck. Every single system the Russians built was built with simplicity and rapid training in mind. Every single one of them. From their tanks, to their missile systems, to their firearms. Everything we did, they did a little less effective in the totality of the measurement and specification. And a hell of a lot quicker to build, easier to build, easier to maintain, and easier to train on. So if it takes 26 weeks to train an American soldier to run a Patriot system, it takes at best 13 weeks to train somebody to run one of those Russian missile systems. And if it was any more than that, The Russians would say they failed in the development of their system and made it too complicated. Because these aren't nuclear missiles, right? These are knock planes down, is what they are. These are the same missiles. These are the same missiles that were sold into the Middle East that have been sh that have shot down Israeli aircraft. What they did with these, these guys from the Middle East went to school for two freaking years, Ollie North? Why are we still listening to a guy? It's a known liar. This entire basis on being famous is being outed as a liar in the Reagan administration. I mean, you might as well, 25 years from now, you know, listen to Eric Holder. Oh, I can't believe you'd said that. Why? Because he's a Republican? Because you don't like Reagan? This is what I'm talking about, folks. No one thinks for themselves. No one's asking the question, what benefit is there to Russia by doing this? What benefit is there to Russia by doing this? And why are we lying about how long it takes to learn how to run one of these things? I got one more question. It has nothing to do with any of this stuff, so we'll end on an up note. Well, let's take that one question and wrap up for the day. Hi, Jack. This is Brent from Indiana. I have a question pertaining to uh, root growth and above-ground plant growth. Uh As far as chop and drop goes, <clears throat> what, uh, what is the ratio of root growth to upper plant growth and the dieback and the production of the dirt? And uh, kind of want to get more detailed into that chop and drop philosophy. If you could, I'd appreciate that. And uh, keep the good work and take care. Uh, interesting question. It definitely takes us away from some of these heavier topics. Um, let me read to you some facts from a presentation I've given in the past uh, toward one of my final slides in that uh, on this very subject. Um, I'm going to read all of them to you, including the ones that are not about the roots directly. But this is some facts about root and soil biomass. They come from a guy named Robert Curick, and uh, I'll put a link to where you can find these and other pretty amazing facts today. But number one, fungi can account for as much as 52% to 54% of total forest biomass. So of all the tree roots, all the tree leaves, all the tree branches in a healthy forest, uh, as much as half or more of the total amount of biomass is actually fungus. And that starts to put some things in perspective for you about how much more is in the soil than we, we realize. Tree, trees generally have a root spread from, a, and this is not probably a healthy tree, a half of the canopy to five times their canopy. And the deeper the taproot, generally the less the total spread past the canopy. 
So a shallower-rooted tree, either by structure or necessity. And by necessity would be, I've hit an impermeable layer. I can't go any deeper, and I'm only two feet deep. Well, i got to put my roots somewhere. So they turn sideways and look for a place to go down. But generally speaking, you're looking at at least the canopy to five times the canopy just in diameter. Remember, it's three-dimensional, too. Most trees, though, have 90% or more of their feeding roots in 18 to 24 inches of soil. That means the deeper roots serve some other purposes, some exchanges with, with exudates like we talked about yesterday, anchoring the tree in place, and mostly, though, acquiring moisture and moisture reserves. Most of the feeding is done in the top, which says a lot about how important that top soil is from a nutritive value. That's where it gets all its nutrient. Not all of its nutrient, 90% of its nutrient. Now, how big can these roots be? There were juniper trees found in New Mexico. Some had roots as deep as 200 feet long, and these were not big trees. So these trees had 25% or 25 times the mass underground as they did above ground, or more. 200 foot deep root. Even in the desert, it's going to stay alive with that. At the end of its first year of growth, an apple tree can produce as many as 17 million root hairs with a total length over a mile. Now, these are root hairs. They're not the roots. They're little hairs on the roots. So if you went and pulled all the hairs off the roots of an apple tree just after one year of growth from a seed, stuck them together, it'd be over a mile long. 17 million of them. Root biomass, this is part of your question, is generally at least equal to above-ground biomass for most plants and trees and can run as high as seven to nine times that number. So if there's a ton of tree above ground, there's at minimum, in a healthy system anyway, a ton below ground. Now, if I remove a half a ton, which is way too much, 50% of the tree, but I remove a half a ton of biomass, does the tree prune off a half a ton of biomass below? No. What's the ratio? It depends. Is it the dry season? Is the wet season? What kind of tree is it? What kind of soil is it? How fast is the regrowth of the tree? Is the tree a leguminous species or is this a, a, a more conventional species? Is it an evergreen conifer or is it a deciduous tree? I mean, it's it, 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 it really isn't that important when it comes down to it. The main reason you're doing it is not to prune the roots. That has an effect. And a big effect that it has is feeding the soil. You think about this, a root, we talked yesterday, has something called an exudate, which means it will it will ooze out basically sugar, carbohydrate, and protein, cookies and cakes. And that attracts certain fungi and bacteria. And they come and they feed on that. And that starts a whole food web that feeds the soil, that feeds the tree, that feeds us. Okay. When you have the root self-prune at all, basically that whole root becomes an exudate and feeds the soil. Now, the other thing you have to understand, when you're doing chop and drop for establishment, rapid establishment of a food forest, you're planning where there's going to be 10 trees, 100 or 200 trees. So a lot of the trees that are coming up that you're chopping down eventually are going to die, and their entire root system is going to become part of the soil. And if you think about what you're doing then, eventually you're doing culture. If you've grown 90 trees to 10 that survive long-term and 90 of them are dead within 5 to 7 years, that's 90 root systems under the ground, not self-pruning, but dead, decomposing 
and holding in moisture and creating soil structure and feeding soil biology. So it's not just as simple, I cut the tree, it prunes its roots, it grows back, I cut the tree, it prunes its roots, it goes back. And what you're also doing is you're, you understand the other thing about chop and drop. Why? Are we doing it just because? Or just because it's a leguminous tree and it puts some nitrogen in the soil? No. The greatest contribution of nitrogen-fixing trees in a chop-and-drop system of nitrogen is that which is chopped and dropped. See, think about it this way. So I got this, I got a locust tree. Or I've got, let's say, a mimosa tree. Some sort of leguminous tree. And it's grown up about 10 feet tall now. Nice big tree. And I'm, I'm pollarding it instead of coppicing. I'm cutting at about 4 feet, 5 feet high. And I'm cutting it and dropping it to the ground. Now, since it's a nitrogen-fixer, It's not having to take a lot of nitrogen out of the soil. It's making most of its own nitrogen. And it's not just making nitrogen with those little bacteria down there in the soil and holding them at the roots. It, it does that for a reason. That nitrogen exchange and the exudates that go to the bacteria exist so the tree can grow its green matter. And it has a nitrogen hierarchy. The greatest concentration of nitrogen is in the bean, the seed. The next highest is in the pod. And then in the leaf, then in the stem, and then in the branch. It goes down as you go from the seed back. And when I cut it and drop it to the ground, all of that nitrogen that's in those green parts of the plant go to the ground and become bioavailable to everything else in the system. So the pulsing of nitrogen off the roots is what I call an interesting side effect that has some benefits. The real reason I'm putting that nitrogen fixer in there is so I can grow lots of green waste with tons of nitrogen in it to feed the soil with without nitrogen inputs to get it to grow in the first place because it makes its own. So when people say things like, well, does clover actually share nitrogen with the grass in a pasture when they're both growing and alive? Yeah. Well, Dr. Ingram says it doesn't because the clover doesn't release its nitrogen off of its roots nodules. Yeah, but every time I go through and cut it, and the green part of the clover grows to the ground, it releases nitrogen that came from the clover fixing its own nitrogen. And every time a sheep takes a, ch a chomp on it, eats it, processes it through its belly, and shits it out as nitrogen, that nitrogen that started off in the clover that ended up back to the ground came from nitrogen fixing. See? So that's, that's how we have to understand this nitrogen component of it. So chop and drop is about accelerating a natural deciduous process. That sounds complicated. What does that mean? Leaves falling off trees. It's about making that happen faster and in larger numbers quicker than it normally could. Think about you, you, your normal cycle in a deciduous forest. The trees grow for a while. There's a dormant period. Even in the tropics, there's a period where they do a lot of leaf drop. It's generally in a cool, wet period. The leaves drop and they come back on. And by planting way over planting the system and constantly cutting it, I can get the equivalent leaf drop in two seasons to maybe eight seasons if nature did it. So all I'm doing is accelerating the natural process. So that's what chop and drop really is. So in a way, it's about growing your own mulch. A high nitrogen, high nutrient rich mulch. And then the, the, the pulsing of the, of the roots, again, is like an interesting side effect. It has an amazing effect on soil biology. Because if you think about it, the other thing it does, let's say, think about this. I have a tree growing. I cut it. And I cut it at a time when I don't overstress it. I want to do that again. I want to always do my chop and drop at a time when rainfall exceeds evaporation. Fancy way of saying the wet season. Never want to do chop and drop in the dry season. I'll open the ground up to the scorching rays of the sun, and I'll kill everything. 
chop and drop in the cool, wet season for the climate type in question. I chop and I drop. Now, that tree, as it begins to regrow, is going to have needs. And it might have different needs than if it were just left alone. It might have slowed its growth rate down a lot because it had gotten pretty big. I don't need to grow that much this year. I'm up here in the canopy with everybody else. I'm chilling. I'm cool. I'm all right. I'm just going to grow a little bit this year. Because anybody knows when you really prune the shit out of a tree, you get new growth like nobody's business. All that new growth requires energy and stuff. So if you heard yesterday's show about exudates and the roots oozing out the exudates, the cookies and cakes, to bring in the beneficial bacteria and, and fungi so that they will feed on it and then poop and then be eaten and be pooped out to provide the plant-soluble nutrients the trees need. The bigger pulsing of the tree through chop and drop is in demanding the tree regrow. I incentivize the tree to produce additional exudates and therefore I enhance and diversify the soil biology. How badass is that? That's what we're actually doing with food forest establishment and chop and drop. It can just be mulch production, but when it's done at a higher level, and it doesn't always have to be perennials, it can be done with annuals, but it's that perennial chop and drop that gets those long-term cycles going. You know, think about it. Think about it. The mimosa tree, 10 feet tall, chopped down to 5 feet tall, head height. How much regrowth will it have in that season? And how many things will it require? And when it requires those things, how will it get them? Will it steal boron and manganese? No, it can't. It can't just take the boron and manganese. It's impossible. The tree cannot do it. The, the manganese and boron have to be in an estate that's available, plant-soluble to the tree. And most of it isn't. So it's going to have to now grow its allies so that they'll make some for it. And it will grow so many, there'll be more than it needs, and what happens to the rest? It becomes available to the rest of the system. That's polyculture. So chop and drop is dramatically simple from a mechanical standpoint, but the bioscientific components behind it, I don't know that I've ever even heard Jeff Lawton actually explain to you what I just did. I don't know that he, I think if you explained it, he'd go, oh yeah, right. I don't know if he's ever explained it to anybody that way ever before. I think it's, it, it's the advantage we have of students of these great minds, like Elaine Ingram, like Jeff Lawton, that instead of being in their one discipline, soil sciences, permaculture, and, and Jeff, permaculture, everything, yes, very, very, very astute urban permaculture designer, but in, later in life he found what he loved, and what he loves is earthworks, Food forestry. I mean, he doesn't even really mess with the gardens at the PRI in Australia. That's Nadia. His wife does that. He's a food forest guy. He likes animals and he likes forest systems. So he gets really, really good at that. But when you can pull back and look at what he does and how it works and what Elaine Ingram says and how that works and start asking yourself, when these two worlds converge... You start to really understand it at a higher level. And that's why I think Jeff's always saying, our students move faster than us. Because the student is a student of many. And the student is combining the disciplines. 
the student understands I can take this and this and this and combine them. And as long as it's done appropriately, it's effective. The problem we have is too many people want to slap too many things together too fast and not really understand any of them before they start putting them together. Hugel culture? Swale. Let's make a Hugel swale. Why? Seems like a good idea. Really? How big's the swale? How much wood? What's your average rainfall event? What's, what's your heaviest rainfall event average over 10 years or 100 years? What's that going to look like when that hits this thing? What are you going to grow in it? You doing it just to do it? Or have you actually thought about all these factors? That's where we got to be careful. But when it comes to understanding biology, you take the scientist that understands the, the microbiology at a high level, and you take the practitioner... And you combine those two, and you realize neither one really understands the other one. And you don't either. I, I'm not saying I know either one of the sides of this better than either one of these people. There's no way. There's no way I ever will. But I understand the pieces I want to pull out and how they go together better than either of them do. When I listen to Elaine Ingram talk about what permaculture is, I'm like, no, Elaine, that's earthworks. That's not permaculture. What you do is permaculture, even though you don't know that. You're not aware of it. You're doing one of the many things that go in the permaculture wardrobe. That's earthworks. So we've got to get the permaculture stuff right. You know, the swales and all. Well, that's not permaculture. It's, it's a permaculture technique, but it's the earthworks right. Before we balance the soil so that everything we do doesn't blow away and run off into the, into the, into the rivers and streams. She's dead right, but she doesn't really get what Jeff's doing. And Jeff doesn't 100% get what she's... Because they both are too damn busy doing what they do best. That is the, the opportunity for the student. To not try to combine these things for the purpose of coming up with something new so you can write a book and be famous. To combine them in the way that suits what you're trying to do so that you can get the result you're looking for. And for me, what I'm looking for is self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and sustainability. So I can feed myself awesome quality food. That's what I'm in it for. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
sure.